This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I'm the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Well, what a beautiful week. This is turning out to be. I, I know it's warming up, maybe warming up a little faster than we wanted. It it always happens like this in, in the Phoenix area, doesn't it? I, I know just a couple of weeks ago, it was super cold, wet, rainy, and now we're we're hitting the 90s. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm just going to enjoy these next couple of weeks as much as I can. It's getting hot pretty quick, I'm sure, but uh, I do plan on... Uh, uh, taking my kids up to the Copper Basin Bible Camp up in Prescott, Arizona. And you all know, if you, you've lived here long at all, Prescott, Payson, th- those are the places to go to get out of the heat and, and out in the woods. It's wonderful up there in Prescott. And I love the, the camp. It's only like 10 minutes out of the city. We have 80 acres. We got cabins and, and the lodge. There's all the utilities. We got several... RV hookups up there. I'm going to take my pop-up camper with the kids. I was planning on do it, doing this last weekend. We had a, a three-day weekend from school, so we were going to go up on a Thursday night, all day Friday. But it was you know, going to snow and rain, so it was going to be muddy, cold. Uh, supposed to get down in the low 20s. I was like, forget that. But now we got a four-day weekend coming up with the Easter Sunday coming. And so we're going to go up the, this coming weekend. It's supposed to be 75 in Prescott, which tells me it'll probably be in the high 60s at the camp. So I'm excited about that, taking the pop-up up there. And, and uh, you know, since, uh, since I brought that up, summer is coming, and summer camp is open. Like, oh, man, we're so excited about this. So we have our camps for all of June up at the Copper Basin Bible Camp. And we start off June with what we call Cub Camp. It's a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for for Cub Campers. And this is meant for kids who've never been to camp and maybe a little nervous about being away from mom and dad. So we introduce them to camp. And it's real cheap. Really cheap. It only costs 95 bucks. I'm not kidding. $95 to send your kid to Cub Camp up at Copper Basin. And, uh... I get now we do require that a parent or a legal guardian be present. They don't have to uh, be involved in the camp. In fact, we don't really want them too close to the kids. We, we want the kids to be separated. But you're there just in case the kid needs something and needs assistance. This is meant for kids who are you know around kindergarten to uh, third grade. After that, we do have a fourth to sixth grade camp, which is all week, as Sunday afternoon to Friday afternoon. And the parents don't have to be there for that, or we don't want parents up there for that. And so we, we encourage you to, to take a look at that. We had the high school camps, uh, the junior high camp, uh, the fourth to sixth grade camp. I'm uh, co-directing that one. And, of course, we have what we call combo week, which is junior high and high school mixed together at the end of June. And you can learn more about that at copperbasinbiblecamp.org. And you go there, and it's got all the scheduling, the dates, and, and information, and your registration link. So it's one hundred and ninety-five dollars 
per camper to go to that camp. Now, if you don't know much about summer camps, that is dirt cheap, folks. Dirt cheap. Don't you want to send your kids to camp? Well, Copper Basin Bible Camp, that's the place to send them, I'm telling you. And, yeah, I do sit on the board, full disclosure. But mo- most camps are like 600 to $1,000 per kid per week. It's a great camp. Look it up. It's a great camp. Okay. Let me get to what I'm, I, I want to talk about today. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. Uh, on Sunday nights, I have a series. We're doing the fourfold Gospels. Uh, that, is, that means we're, we're looking through all four Gospels on Sunday night, but we're trying to put it in chronological order of the events as they occur. And it's a great study. I'm using uh, J.W. McGarvey and Pendleton's book on called The Fourfold Gospel. They wrote that a long time ago. And that's kind of my guide as like how to get the chronology and the, the order of things as you, we kind of jump around. And last night we did a, a section of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And this is Joseph and the birth of, of Jesus here. And we, we know the story well. We, we don't know much about Joseph, do we? The, you could say, stepfather of, of Jesus. He's not the actual father. And uh, I, I learned so much uh, about Joseph uh, by studying through this and really diving deep into the text. That's one of the, the main points of this is to, to look at passages and look at them a little closer than we normally do. Don't we do that a lot when we're reading the Bible we, we read things where we're like, well, I know the story uh, of the birth of Jesus. And yes, yes, I know that Joseph gets that vision, that dream from the angel that don't put away Mary. I know that. But have we truly stopped and looked closely at the passage? I won't be able to get into everything here. Uh, I think it, I think I almost went 45 minutes last uh, Sunday night with this. So uh, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. So we're going to just kind of skim through some of those things. You can find the lesson on our uh, website, www.nvcoc.net. Scroll down, you'll see Sunday. Do I have Sunday evening sto- uh, lessons on there? I don't know if I do. I'll have to double check that, make sure it's on our website. Uh, but I do have them on our YouTube channel, and you'll, you can find it there. So <clears throat> this section, Matthew 1, 18-25, shows us without a doubt that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. However, Matthew details the story of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. And and that's important for us to to keep that in mind as we we look at this. And it starts off in verses 18 and 19 with Joseph facing this dilemma. The text says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Uh, Okay, the word betrothed there. So you got, you know, Opening up with the, the birth of Jesus, we have that word betrothed. Uh, maybe your translation says engaged or, or something like that. It is not like it is with us today. When they got engaged back then, it was just like being married, except you don't have all the, 
the intimacy, you know, that we, we get with marriage uh, on engagement. And uh, let me just read to you Deuteronomy chapter 22. I should already have that marked in my Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 27. This is actually in the law concerning betrothal or engagement. It, it's just like, it's, it's pretty much marriage. You cannot separate. Once you're betrothed or engaged as a Jew, that's it. You're married, but you can't come together yet. Uh, so Deuteronomy 22, starting at verse 23, says, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death, the girl, because she did not cry out in the city. And the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And then he goes on to say if it was in the field and, and the, the girl does not get stoned because, you know, she was, it's a rape. And, and, and in other words, if she was a willing participant, then, you know, she's in. If she's not a willing participant, she's obviously going to cry out. You don't stone her. But notice that it, they're engaged. She's engaged to a man in verse 23, and then she's called his wife there in verse 24. Their, their custom and their law for the Jews was, once you're betrothed, you're engaged, you're married, but you stay separated. So here in the case of Joseph, back in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is living in his home, but Mary stays with her dad. They're betrothed, they're engaged, but they don't come together yet. So, uh, she, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, so there's a, uh, there's that reference to husband there, literally the man of her, as an indication of the permanency of the betrothal. So he's going to send her away. That uh, refers to divorce. Uh, the description uh, of Joseph being a righteous man explains that you know he, he doesn't want to disgrace her. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to bring some kind of public notice to her. In, in the uh, betrothal process, when it comes to an end and the marriage going to the marriage ceremony, they'll have this big you know parade in that town. And they're in Nazareth. That's not a big town, so everyone knows everyone there. And he's going to walk her from her dad's home to his home, and everyone's going to follow. It's part of the the, the ceremony. So there are everyone's going to see her. They're going to know she's pregnant. And they're going to think one of two things. Either one, Mary was promiscuous and, you know, she she would lay with another man. Or, since he's marrying her, they're going to think, well, Joseph couldn't wait. Look what he did. He sinned. He sinned. He, he laid with Mary before the time. And uh, so, <clears throat> he's being a righteous man. He doesn't want people to think that he has sinned before God. So, he's planning to send her away secretly. <clears throat> And so he's going to, I think what that means in my mind is he, he, he doesn't want Mary to have any issues. So he's going to use the, the lax uh, divorce terms of just handing a certificate of divorce to her and let her go away secretly for her sake and for his sake. This is the best course of action, really, for both of them. And that's, that's all he knows. He doesn't know what's going on. He just, just like any of us, we saw this happening, we'd be that be thinking, Mary, what? I can't believe you did this. I'm going to have to send you away 
for my sake and for yours. You know what's going to happen when people find out? Unbelievable. So he's going to send her away secretly. Good guy. Righteous man. He's, it's showing just how righteous he is. Um, now, uh, let, let's, let's deal with the Holy Spirit here. It's capitalized in our New American Standard Bibles. I have that in my New American Standard here. Uh, so they think it's the third person of the Godhead. Um, now, first, you know, a little, little preface here. I do believe there is the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe that. Sometimes people think I don't because I, I, I come to these passages and I say it's not the third person of the Godhead. Most of the time it's not, I'm finding. But it, it, sometimes it is, just not here. And here's why. The Jews, when you do a good, thorough study of the Old Testament, you look at uh, the Hebrew, the Jewish uh, uh, understanding of Scripture, they had no understanding of a triune. None. They did not see a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. It was just only God. That's it. And so when they would see Spirit in reference to God, or Holy Spirit in reference to God, their minds would always go to one of two things. Either it's the presence of God or it's power that went forth from God. And that's the way Joseph and the readers of Matthew's gospel, because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, that's how they would see Holy Spirit here. Power coming forth from God, which makes sense because they're looking at a miraculous pregnancy here. Because it says, uh, Joseph, before they came together, she, Mary, was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. And so he planned to send her away secretly. And so that's that's uh, everything that Joseph's of Joseph's understanding up to this point for right now. Now verses twenty to twenty one. This is Joseph learning the truth. So you know something happens that helps him reverse his decision uh, about quietly putting Mary away. Let's read the text. But when he had considered this, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So here it is. The messenger informs Joseph of the truth. And, and there's four things that Joseph, the, the, the angel says to him here. Telling him not to be afraid, you know, to take Mary as your wife. That suggests that there has been no sin involved, which is what he was worried about, right? Next, the angel explains uh, why there has been no sin. Well, here's how the child was actually conceived. It's miraculous. It's because of the presence of God. Suggesting that God has intervened to cause this conception. She's going to bear a son. Now he's, he's informed of what Mary already knew. First sonogram, right? And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So here's the angel presenting Joseph. Here's your role in the birth of Jesus. You're going to name him, and you're going to name him Jesus. So pretty easy, right? Pretty clear cut, I think. And so now he's he's learned something. So he was um, uh, facing a dilemma. He, he looking at the situation. What's the the best thing I can do before God? 
Now, he's not worried worried about how people think of him, although you see that that he's going to put her away secretly. He doesn't want anyone to think he's sinning, but he's doing that because he's a righteous man before God. He's trying to do the best thing for man, for people, and before in his standing before the Lord, and so he doesn't want to see anything happen to Mary because he knows how people can be, and so he's doing his best here within the situation. Then the angel reveals to him, "Here's what's actually going on," and then he wakes up and he makes a decision that is going to make life even harder on him, even harder. Now in verse verses 22 to 25, this is where we see that. But the first couple of verses here, what is this, uh, 22 and 23, this is uh, Matthew's interpretation of what, what the angels said. And that's important to differentiate because here we have some, some things that can be confusing for us. Let's read 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. All right, now I need to uh, get my notes here to make sure I do this right. I want us to look at a few words here. I hope we got time to go through all this. I might go a little fast. Consider these things because we misinterpret this, and we preach incorrectly on this a lot of times. This is not the way we understand it. Matthew says about the word fulfill that this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah found in Isaiah 7.14. Sometimes when a writer says that this fulfills prophecy, he means what we would normally think. That the Old Testament prophet gave a prediction of something that was going to happen in the future. Then the New Testament writer says that the prediction is fulfilled or accomplished in the event which is being reported. But the concept of fulfillment is not always that clear cut. Sometimes a New Testament writer will point you know, to like an Old Testament event and show the similarities of that event to what was happening in the New Testament times. Matthew's use of the word fulfill is primarily to draw a parallel to similar circumstances of the Old Testament uh, with that of Jesus. Consider Matthew 13 verses 14 to 15. I'm going to go ahead and read it, even though we don't have time, but we got, I want you to hear it. There he writes, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and, with, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Now, Matthew 13, 14, and 15 does not mean that the prophecy of Isaiah 6, 9, 10, which he was quoting, was a prediction of and is being fulfilled on the occasion confronting Jesus. We know that for a fact, because even Paul uses the same prophecy to describe circumstances confronting him, Acts 28, 25 to 27. And what he's saying there is these are similar situations. What's happening in the Old Testament could be said of what's happening in the present situation there with Jesus in Matthew 13 and Paul in Acts 28. They're the same. Also, Matthew says in uh, Matthew 2.15, that's where Joseph is taking Jesus to Egypt. 
He says it fulfills Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And that, you can look at that quote there in Matthew 2.15. However, Hosea, in Hosea 11.1, he is saying in that passage, that is a reference to Israel's exodus from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Now, I have been raised, uh, when I was in that sunset and other places, they would always say, well, it's parallel, not parallel, they call it a uh, dual prophecy. No, it's not. I, I, I believed it then, but now, I, no, I don't think so. I think he's just saying there there's similarities. They're not saying it's a, a dual prophecy. It's a similarity. And you'll see that here when we come back to our Matthew 1 passage. Because it happens again in Matthew 2.18. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31.15 saying, Oh, Rachel weeping for her children is fulfilled in Herod's attempt to kill Jesus by slaying all the male children in Bethlehem two years and under. Now, Jeremiah was speaking of God's people going into Babylonian captivity. So Matthew can say that the incident he discusses fills up the Old Testament text that he quotes. And it's likely that the angel's statement, she will bear a son, reminded Matthew of that same expression in Isaiah, will bear a son. The similarities of the two announcements would be obvious, and it's important not to miss Matthew's point in the passage. He's not so much concerned about the relationship between the birth of Jesus and the Isaiah prophecy. Rather, he's concerned that his readers understand the identity of Jesus. The supernatural element involved in the conception points to a divine being in Mary's womb. That brings us to the concept of virgin back in our Matthew chapter 1 passage. When Matthew quotes from the Isaiah passage, he uses the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, sometimes abbreviated as LXX, rather than using the Hebrew text. Now, we have the Greek term here normally means virgin. Now, in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 7.14, they use the Hebrew word Alma, which normally does not mean virgin. It's a term that refers to a young woman of marriageable age. So that a young woman would likely be a virgin might be understood, but not necessarily. That Mary was a virgin, that's not disputed. And this may even be the reason why Matthew uses the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew text here. But no one's disputing that Jesus was born of a virgin. But there is much evidence to show that Isaiah was not predicting a virgin birth in the context of Isaiah 7. In that passage, it shows that King Ahaz in 735 BC was afraid of an attack from Aram of Damascus and its ally, the northern kingdom of Israel. Those two had rebelled against the Assyrians and they wanted Ahaz and the southern kingdom to join them. So Ahaz was considering to appease the Assyrians by taking the temple treasury to pay tribute, you know, enlisting them to help him against Aram and and Israel. So Isaiah, he sent down there to Ahaz uh, uh, to to tell him that the threat was only temporary and that he should trust God to overcome his enemies rather than to trust the Assyrians. So he suggests that, Ahaz, you can have a sign that will evidence this truth from God as a promise to him, but he he refuses to have that sign. So Isaiah gave him one. Now, not all signs are supernatural. Isaiah says there in Isaiah chapter 7, 
He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, the Hebrew word is Alma, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For behold, the boy will know enough to refuse. For before, I'm sorry, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land in whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. All right? Isaiah is saying that the threat is temporary and that trusting God would make it go away. The sign given is in the fact that the maiden, the young woman, would give birth to a son And by the time that boy was old enough to choose good and evil for himself, the threat would be gone from the north. The same kind of sign was offered in the naming of Isaiah's own child. That's in Isaiah chapter 8. Now Ahaz ignored Isaiah's warning and hired Assyria, which placed Judah as a slave under Assyria. The statement regarding the Alma, the, the young maiden, had to do with the crisis that Ahaz faced, and not with the birth of Jesus 700 years later. <laughs> How could the birth of Jesus be assigned to Ahaz to show his decision was wrong? That doesn't make sense. Matthew was not saying that that was a prophecy concerning Jesus. He was showing similarities. I, I know the word fulfill sounds that way, but Look at the context. Look at what's happening in Isaiah. Look at what's happening here. Matthew wants his readers and us to see one thing, that Jesus is the Emmanuel. Now, in the Greek, the Emmanuel is not actually in there in the Greek Septuagint. It just says God with us. But when he translates it, or when he when Matthew gives it, he actually uses the, the Hebrew word Emmanuel, and then he translates it God with us. The Jews know that, but he wants them to see it. He wants them to understand something about the Christ. Because you and me, we we know that Jesus is the Son of God. But the Jews back in that day, they struggled with that. They struggled with it. And that's why that's here for us. I'm already out of time, but I want you to think about that. We're going to probably hit on this a little bit more again next week, or you can grab the lesson on live from Sunday night on our YouTube channel. But thank you for being here. Uh, Sorry I had to go through that quickly. Maybe I should start doing an hour show. I don't know. But take care of yourselves, be safe, enjoy the warm weather, and always pray to the Father for for our country. We are moving in a a difficult direction, bad direction, so we don't want to keep doing the things we're doing. Let's bring our country back to the Word and back to the Lord. Take care. God bless. Bring it out. Bring it out. Bring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ.